Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. A couple Sundays ago, we had a whole bunch of family in town for our twins' eighth birthday, and I was going to grill brats and hot dogs for dinner because that's like the simplest way to feed a bunch of people. So I did reach Des Moines in the morning, went home, took a shower, put on a brand new shirt I'd just gotten, and fast forward a few hours, and I was boiling the brats on our gas stove because that seemed like the safest, quickest, easiest way to cook like 30 of them. And I reached into the cupboard above the stove to grab a lighter, and I thought I caught the sight of flames out of the corner of my eye. I looked down, and sure enough, my new shirt was on fire. Apparently, cotton is flammable, and it had slipped into the open flame when I leaned over it, and that bad boy just went right up. But because I'm a responsible, intelligent adult, I did the thing we've all been taught to do since we were little kids, stop, drop, and roll. Just kidding, I didn't do that at all. Instead, I stood there and yelled, I'm on fire! And then the two other adults who were in the room, my wife and sister, instead of telling me to stop, drop, and roll, were like, you gotta get that shirt off so we can stomp out the flames. And so I panicked and like wriggled my way out of the shirt and finally got it off, but I pulled a muscle in my back doing it because I am firmly middle-aged. So this like searing pain down my whole shoulder blade and I ended up laying on the ground next to my flaming shirt, just stomping on it like, "Ah." (laughs) Uh, we got the flame out though eventually. And after a couple days, I could turn my neck to the left again. So all is good in the world. But my shirt is is never going to be the same because I don't know if you can tell, but the the flame hole is hard to miss. And I was thinking about it later and I had a total dad moment. I realized, you know the worst part about this whole thing? It's how many dollars per hour that shirt cost me. I didn't even wear it for half a day, like one afternoon before I set it ablaze. It's like a $5 an hour shirt. That's too much to be paying for a shirt. That's wasteful. Even if you have crazy money, it's a little bit extravagant. You can't be spending that much on a shirt. It was completely unintentional, but it got me thinking about other times in my life where I've been wasteful or extravagant or reckless, not just with my money, but with my life. Times when I've done things without thinking about or paying attention to the cost or the consequences. And I think all of us have been there and done that. We got stories, and they're mostly not our finest moments, but part of being human is doing that, and there's a word for that kind of behavior. Prodigal. That's a word we're used to seeing attached to the word son, especially if we grew up in or around church. But even culturally in America, prodigal son is a familiar phrase, and it comes from one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. It's in Luke chapter 15. It's the story of a son who got his inheritance early, ran away, and wasted the entire fortune partying. So we tend to think prodigal means bad, sinful, or wayward, but it doesn't. What it means is wasteful, extravagant, or reckless. What we're going to do over the course of the next three weeks in this Lost and Found series is take a look at each of the three characters in the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, the older son, and the father, and we're going to discover that they're all prodigals. Each one of them is reckless in their own way, some good, some bad, but nobody is more reckless in this story 
than the Father. And that may sound like a crazy thing to say, but as we dig in, what we're going to discover is that no matter how far from God we've run, no matter how many choices we've made without any regard to the cost or the consequences, no matter how lost we've been or how lost we feel, our recklessness and extravagance has absolutely nothing on the love of God, which is chasing us down and inviting us in. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11 this morning. If you don't have one, no worries. You can follow along with the words on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, please grab one from the Next Steps table out in the lobby before you go. They are our gift to you. And as you're turning there, just a little bit of a context. Um, as Jesus is telling this story, he's talking to kind of a unique mix of people. He's been hanging out with a crowd that Luke calls tax collectors and sinners, And that's a New Testament term for this group of people who are kind of down and outers. They're far from God. And it's interesting because they're far from God, but God is drawing near to them. Jesus intentionally sought out these folks in order to spend time with them, which kind of ticked off the religious leaders. This group called the Pharisees showed up. And they couldn't figure out like what Jesus was doing or why he'd be doing that or why he'd be letting those people get close to him, and their primary concern is that Jesus was being reckless. They showed up and they're like, yo, Jesus, you can't be hanging out with these messed up people. You're being reckless with your reputation, and you're being reckless with your responsibility as a religious teacher, because your job is to help point them to a better way so they'll leave their wicked life of sin. But if you love them, and you spend time with them, and you accept them before they figure it all out and get all their ducks in a row, then what's going to make them change? You can't do that anymore. And Jesus' response is to tell them three stories, to help them kind of get a bigger, better picture of who he is and what he's all about. He starts with the story about a sheep that's lost. It says that the shepherd left 99 sheep behind to chase after the one that had gone missing. And then he tells the story of a lady who lost the coin, and she tore her entire house apart looking for it, and then through a giant celebration when she found it. And basically, he wants them to understand that the father is obsessed with chasing down lost people. He wants them to get it, that he showed up not to hang a help-wanted sign, because he needed all the holy folks to help him accomplish his mission, but to hang a help-available sign. He was spending time with imperfect people, because he was a doctor with a cure not an employer with a labor shortage. And he drives home the point with this third story. And this is what we read in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. It's almost impossible for me to explain Like how shocked, how absolutely mind-blown the crowd would have been whether listening to Jesus tell this story for a bunch of reasons. First of all, for the younger son to have said something like that to his father was just incredibly awful. Like culturally, this is basically him saying, dad, I wish you were dead. I've been hanging out here trying to bide my time and wait you out, but like I'm just, I'm sick of waiting. I don't love you. I love your stuff. I don't want you, I want your stuff. So if you're not going to hurry up and die, man, can we just pretend you're dead and give me my inheritance right now? Can you even imagine being told that as a parent? You'd feel like your guts just got ripped out of your 
chest. But that's what this kid says to his dad. And everybody listening, both the sinners and the Pharisees, is like, oh, snap. That kid is not going to know what hit him. But what hit him is going to be his dad's sandal. Just whack. Because in that society, the dad would have been expected to have the kid beaten and then exiled from the family. You can't say that kind of stuff to an elder. But Jesus says instead, the dad did what his kid asked. He just divided up his property and, and gave him the inheritance. What's fascinating here is that the word we translate property isn't the normal word for property or possessions or stuff. It's this Greek word bios. It means life. Luke literally says he divided his life between them and gave the younger son his portion. And here's what he's getting at. In the first century, this guy's assets weren't liquid. They were tied up in his land. His land was his connection to the past and to his ancestors. It was also his source of income for the future. Not just that, it's what his status in society, his identity, his reputation were built on. And to divide up his property meant selling part of his land. He had to actually give away a piece of his identity in order to make this happen. And it begs the question, why? Why? Why would he do that? And I think for us and for the crowd that's listening, the answer is clear. This is a father who wants a relationship with his son that is not built on coercion. It isn't built on reward, but it's built on love. And he wants to make sure that if his son chooses to love him and chooses to be a part of his family, it was his son's choice. And so he's willing to humiliate himself to create the conditions where that can happen. But in this moment, the son runs, not just walks, in the opposite direction. He gets his cash from his dad, which is all he really ever wanted, and then the way he spends it clues us into his motivation for this whole thing. He goes a long way from home, and he blows the entire fortune on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He just parties till it's gone, and I think in this moment, he is me. He's you. He's us. And the way he does his wild living is different from the way I do mine, and it may be different from the way that you do yours, but Jesus is pointing us to the reality of the human condition. We all have a bent toward independence and instant gratification. We live in the middle of a society that has leaned heavily into that impulse. Like We would now say that any bit of self-denial any choice not to pursue what I want for me right now is wrong because it's denying my truth and my authentic self. And so we just tell each other to, to chase whatever we want. The heart wants what it wants, right? We've all heard that phrase. And we use it to justify disconnecting ourselves from any sort of responsibility to anyone else around us. I, I gotta do me. And then chasing whatever pleasure seems good to us in the moment, because the heart wants what it wants. Do you guys know where that phrase comes from? It comes from an interview that Woody Allen did when he was 56 years old, describing why he didn't think it was a big deal or any problem at all that he had an affair with and then married his 21-year-old adopted daughter. His heart just wanted what it wanted, okay? I don't want you to choke back the vomit from your mouths. Allow me to point out the irony of the fact that that's super gross, but also his little catchphrase has become the unofficial motto for 21st century America. Independence and instant gratification. Woo! The problem is that never works out the way we want it to work out. 
that pathway just doesn't lead to the life we've been searching for. Instead, it leads to emptiness and brokenness. What we find is that independence and instant gratification ultimately leave us with nothing and nobody. We end up empty without anybody left that we can count on. And that's what this younger son figured out. When his money dried up, he didn't have anything left to live for or any friends left to help him out. This is what Jesus says in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land, in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around this one. Like I worked at Living History Farms for summer when I was in college, and I cannot even imagine looking at pig slop thinking, oh, I got to get me some of that. Mm." I think I would rather starve to death. I'd just be like, I had a good run. This is it for me. I'm not, I'm not eating it, but here this kid is. And he's just like, he's so broke and so broken that he wants to eat pig slop. And even working with pigs in his society is like the lowest rung on the social ladder because pigs were unclean. You couldn't eat them in ancient Israel. And if you even touched them, you were cut off from the religious life of your people. But he's broken and lost and empty. And it's his own bad decisions that brought him to that point. And again, I think we can relate, not necessarily to the specifics of his situation. Not all of us have worked on a pig farm, although this is a room full of Iowans, so some of us have worked on a pig farm. But all of us can relate to living recklessly, to chasing something we thought we wanted and ending up empty-handed. And sometimes we just double down. We're like, well, I, I just didn't get enough of it. But we know that's not true. We know the path we're on hasn't delivered what it promised for us, or anybody else. I read an interview recently with, with Justin Bieber. Where he was talking about his faith in Jesus. And he said, at one point, I had a whole lot of clothes and cars and accolades and awards, and I was completely unfulfilled. He wrote a song about it last year called Lonely, which is an absolutely haunting look at money and fame. And we don't have his fame or his money, but I think all of us can relate to his regret. We've made choices that cut us off from other people, cut us off from God, cut us off from the relationships that mattered most to us. We've done things that left us feeling like we're a long way from where we used to be and who we want to be. And the question is, what do we do with that? Well, Jesus continues the story in verse 17. He says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This phrase came to his senses as a Jewish idiom that means repented. He just realized the direction I'm going in isn't working. I got to turn around. I got to do something different. This guy played with fire and he got burned. All right, that happens. Just trust me. I literally and metaphorically, fire will burn you. And so he, he got burned and he's like, I gotta, I gotta repent. Just turn around. And he came up with a plan that made perfect sense to him based on every religious system that had ever surrounded him. And basically every religious system that's ever existed in the history of the world. He was going to go back and talk about just how wretched he was and what a terrible thing he'd done to his dad and then ask his dad for a job so he could start paying him back. It was this two-pronged plan built on self-loathing 
and self-righteousness. So we have this human thing where something deep inside of our souls understands that we're disconnected from the divine. And there's a hole we'll never fill until we get it reconnected. And every religion ever has provided us a pathway to reconnection. And they are always built on self-loathing and self-righteousness. Because they work off of this assumption. We assume God only loves us if we're sorry enough or good enough to deserve it. We assume God will only love us if we're sorry enough or good enough to deserve it. And so when we make mistakes, and all of us inevitably do, we come to the conclusion that like, somehow we just got to come before God and grovel and be like, ah, oh, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. We stink. We're pot and scum. And if we can convince God we hate ourselves, he'll be happy about that for some reason. And then after we've convinced him we hate ourselves, we demonstrate that by working really hard to make things right, by like earning our way back into his family. And even irreligious systems are built on this. The post-Christian, post-modern Western world, America right now, is absolutely a society built on these two principles, and cancel culture is the result. Cancel culture is the inevitable result of a society that understands there's a disconnection between us and the divine on some level, but has gotten rid of the idea that the divine even exists. And it's a perfect example of how self-loathing and self-righteousness play out on a massive social scale. Because in our world, like if you, if you mess up, if you violate one of our bits of societal orthodoxy, you're done. You are canceled. And the mob is vicious. It's not just your actions that get condemned. It's your character, your personhood, and your livelihood. And once you're canceled, the only way back is to publicly talk about what a piece of garbage you are. To like just go before the mob and demonstrate self-loathing until you get to the point where everybody feels like you now understand that you're just as worthless as they already decided you are. And after you've done that, you start taking steps by your own great effort, by your own hard work to jump through all of the hoops they've set up and check all of the right boxes so that you can deserve your second chance. And the threat of that hangs over our heads constantly. This is the world we live in. If you don't believe me, spend an hour on Twitter. It's awful. It's miserable. It's a terrible way to organize a society, but we're here in part because we inherited this incredibly high moral standard from Christianity, and then we chucked Christ, and so we have no more system, no more means of extending grace to anyone around us when they mess up. What we have is a new secular religion that looks just like every other religion for millennia and millennia. It's built on the oppressive, bad assumption that to be right, you have to be sorry enough or good enough all on your own. That's what this prodigal son believed. And so he came up with this plan. He's going to go back. He's going to apologize. He's going to fall over himself saying he's not worthy to be part of the family. And then he's going to start paying his dad back. And he gets this speech and he rehearses it in his head again and again and again until he's got it nailed down, even though he doesn't know whether his dad will even see him or will just kick him out as soon as he shows up on the doorstep. And this is what happens next. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You guys, this, this is why the Roman Empire refused to classify Christianity as a religion for centuries. They thought it was anti-religion. They were convinced that Christians were just in the business of tearing down religions. They thought they were atheists. Looked at Christians like, you guys do not believe in God because there are no gods that work like this. But Jesus showed up and he said, no, this is the only way, the only God has ever worked. Every idea humanity's had about how to get reconnected to God and to each other and to the world has been wrong. It's been wrong. And what Jesus does here in this moment with this story is completely redefines repentance and reconnection. This is this crazy, amazing story where this kid goes back to his dad and he's headed home and he's rehearsing the speech and he's like, all right, you know, we'll see what happens. And culturally, the audience would have been expecting the father to not let him in, to tell the servants, don't even let him set foot on this property. He had better show me before I ever put any trust in him again. Because that's what they would have done if they were in his shoes. Or his sandals, I guess, to be culturally accurate. But that's what I would have done too. You probably would have also. When people hurt us that badly, we build walls and we do not let them back in easily. But here, the kid doesn't even make it to his dad. His dad comes to him. He says when he was a long way off, his dad took off running towards him. And as I read this, I think this is the most unbelievable part of the story. He didn't even stretch. You talk about a reckless decision. That guy better not be walking downstairs for like two days. I can't even sleep without getting sore now. His hamstrings, my hamstrings are sore just reading the story. But love compels him and he takes off running. He crashes into his son. He throws his arm around him. And the son launches in to this speech that he has memorized. And he's trying to say it and his dad just interrupts him just doesn't pay attention to him at all. Have you ever had that happen? You're like trying to say something to somebody and you've got it all planned out and they just ignore you? I have. When Jenny and I got engaged, I had this whole speech planned in my head. It was like all locked in there. I memorized 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I was like, all right, got this. And then we got on the Ferris wheel at Navy Pier in Chicago. And I was like, hey, Jenny, I got something I need to say. And she whipped off her shoe because she'd been training for a marathon. And not surprisingly, this happens sometimes when you run a lot, like one of her toenails turned black. So here I am trying to propose to this woman and she's like, ah, look. And I'm like, ah, I can't even say what I'm trying to say with that out. You just put it away. And she threw off my whole vibe. That's exactly what the father does to the son here. This is a hard vibe check. The son's like, I'm not worthy. And the father's like, I don't care about your plan, man. I, I really don't care at all about how you're going to make it right because I have the right to decide who's in my family and who's not in my family. You are dead and you're alive. The only condition that's ever existed for you to be a part of my family or not is whether you want it. And you're home. Let's party. I love this so much because this is Jesus' way of demonstrating for us just how disinterested God is and us proving to him how sorry we are. Just how little God cares about us working hard enough to like earn our way back into his family. Jesus is telling us that's just not how it works. 
because of who God is and how God loves, repentance is not about self-loathing. And restoration is not about self-righteousness. That's just not the way God has ever operated. Turning from the destructive path you're on isn't about just deciding that you're this like awful, worthless, unlovable worm. Because that's not how God sees you. God has never seen you like that, not for one split second, not even in your worst moments. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You are the voice and the imagination of God wrapped in skin. You're infinitely valuable to him. And repentance isn't pretending that's not true. It's just acknowledging with sorrow that you're the one who broke the relationship between you and God and turning your heart back toward him. And restoration isn't about you earning the right to be in God's family. I got news for you. That is a debt you cannot pay. You can't be good enough or do enough good to earn your way across that gap. I'm just like this kid. Let's be real. There's no way he could have ever paid back his father for his share of the inheritance by working as a day laborer. In 10 lifetimes, he couldn't have even ballparked what it would have taken to pay his dad back. And it's the exact same thing with us. We can't do it. And so God did. Recklessly and extravagantly, he paid a cost that we couldn't pay. Jesus came and he willingly gave up his life because sin brings death and life had to be paid as a sacrifice. He died for our sins so we could be forgiven and set free. And then he conquered death and unlocked it from the inside so we could live. And you guys, what Jesus did in that moment shattered every religious assumption that's ever been made, every religious system that's ever been developed in the history of the world. And it also smashed our shame and our separation. Look, it's easy to see ourselves as our worst moments, to allow the world around us to define us by our greatest mistakes and then walk around just carrying shame all our lives, everywhere we go. But Jesus' sacrifice means we don't have to do that. I want you to know this morning, you are not defined by where you've been, what you've done, or what's been done to you. If you know Jesus, you are defined by what he did for you, which means you don't got to carry shame around for one more second. There's no separation anymore either. When we make mistakes, it's so easy to just run from community to feel like I'm not worthy because of the choices I've made and the decisions I've made to, to be a part of this thing anymore. There's, there's no way I could ever be welcome again in the church or, or in God's family, but I want you to know, just like the father in this story, without asking questions or setting conditions, welcomed his son back in. We are welcomed in through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters with full access to the father. And that's crazy to wrap our minds around. Because some of us have lived a whole lot like the prodigal son. We've made a whole bunch of decisions without any care in the world for the cost or the consequences. We've hurt the people around us and shipwrecked our lives along the way. We look in the mirror and cannot help but see someone we don't want to be staring back at us. We've been reckless and extravagant and wasteful. And the world around us keeps on telling us that the answer is to just be sorry enough and try hard enough, but we know that we can't. 
and we just feel like ah, it's, it's, it's hopeless then, and we're too far gone. In the fifth book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a boy running away from home. And all along his journey, he sometimes thinks he hears footsteps behind him, and he hears this occasional roar off in the distance. And eventually he just gets to the point where he's lost, and he admits it. And then Aslan, the great lion, the king of Narnia, shows up, and only then does he learn Aslan has been protecting him the whole time. Lewis later said he wrote down this story as a description of the way he felt God pursuing him all his life. In his moments of beauty and his moments of pain, even when he messed up, even when he felt like he was too far gone for God to ever love. And if that's you this morning, if you're feeling like you're too far gone, or when that's you, because even if it's not the way you feel right now, all of us have been in that space. All of us have done things where we feel like this is the one, this is the one after which God could never love me again. Like, I'm, I'm out now. When you feel that way, I want to invite you, I want to challenge you to listen for the footsteps. Listen for the roar in the distance because there is no distance too far for God to stop chasing you and there is no sin too great for God to cancel you. If you feel lost, when you feel lost, all you have to do to be found is turn around because the Father is watching and waiting. And if you've never done that before in your life, you can. It's easy and it's free. All you have to do is believe and surrender. I'm going to say a prayer in a minute. You can pray it with me. And if you do that for the first time, check a box in your connection card. We'd love to give you just a little bit more info about what it looks like to live as a child of the Father. But for all of us, no matter where you're at along your spiritual journey today, I just want to encourage you to stop listening to the voices of this world. Stop listening to the oppressive bad assumption that you have to be sorry enough or good enough to earn God's love. You can't be sorry enough and you can't be good enough, but God loves you anyway. He gave everything for you anyway. And so please today, stop striving. Please today, stop holding on to shame. Release it and find rest in the knowledge that you are welcomed in and loved beyond measure. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for chasing us down. Lord, we know that we're so messed up. We know that we've lived reckless lives, that we've hurt you, that we've hurt others, that we've hurt ourselves. And we thank you for not abandoning us to that broken space, for not leaving us there. Thank you for giving your life so we could be forgiven and set free. Help us today to walk out of here and live into that freedom in a way that gives us a a greater peace than we've ever known, in a way that allows us to stop striving, and in a way that points a hurting world that's trying and trying to find connection to you without even knowing how to find it. Lord, let us live in a way that points them toward your incredible, immeasurable love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.